Well, so good to see all of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, we're in Mark chapter 14. We are walking through this Gospel. Uh, In case you're just starting to join us, we're in Mark 14. You know, every single person makes thousands of decisions every day. By the time you've already made it to church, you've already made hundreds of decisions. Anything from what you might wear, uh, you're asking questions like what to eat, where to go, what to do. I mean, there's decisions that you're making all the time. Most of the decisions seemingly have very little effect on our life. You know, we just make a decision, we just kind of move on. Uh, for instance, you know, like, do you want fries with that? Um, should I watch this, this preseason game? Is it really as important as I made it sound to my wife? You know, those sort of things. Those are kind of meaningless stuff, right? But then, of course, there are some decisions. They actually have a lot of consequence. Some of the choices that you make are going to have some lasting effect. For instance, like, should I go to this school? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Those are extremely important questions and decisions that you will make. But there is one decision that just far outweighs all the others. It is absolutely the most important decision that you will ever make, and that is this. How are you responding to Jesus? The defining feature of your life is how you're responding to Jesus Christ. And it's very interesting, as we've made our way through the Gospel of Mark, we are here now at Mark 14, and we are seeing Jesus at the very end of his earthly ministry. It is just a couple days before the cross. And you will find that there were three different responses to Jesus that were prevalent, and we're going to see them today in Mark 14, that are exactly the same today. So let me introduce you to the first response to Jesus, and that is one of rejection. Take a look, Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. Now, the Passover... Every Passover, Jews from around the Roman Empire would come and converge on Jerusalem. Jerusalem would swell up to 10 times its normal size. As you had those who were the worshipers of Yahweh, the one true God would come and they would celebrate Passover. Passover was the, the basically like the Independence Day for Israel. Because you remember when the people of Israel were in bondage in Israel, God had the angel of death come and pass over. And anybody's house that was not marked out with the blood of this lamb, why, they experienced the death of their firstborn. Those that took God at his word and believed and actually did this, their firstborn were spared. Those that did not, why, their firstborn died. It was this culminating miracle and event that led Pharaoh to say, enough, leave. And he cast out Israel and they left. And when they left, it was really kind of the beginning of their, them as a nation. It was their Independence Day. And it was followed by uh, what is, was celebrated as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because remember, God has pe- had his people prepare. And one of the things he said is, I want you to bake bread with no leaven, meaning it wasn't going to rise. Leaven symbolized sin. It was the idea that we're leaving Egypt without sin. We are following God. And so every year, the people of Israel would celebrate Passover, this culminating event where they would sacrifice the the Passover lamb, 
And that would be followed by the week of unleavened bread. And they would refer to it as the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that is what is taking place here. And they were two days away. So this is Wednesday before Passover is being celebrated. And look at this. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and to kill him. The chief priests, this was made up primarily of the Sadducees. You remember them? They were those that did not believe in the supernatural. And they hated Jesus because Jesus actually upended their financial operations they had turned the worship of God into. You remember how Jesus began his ministry and how he ended it? He ended it and began it by flipping the tables in the temple, clearing and cleaning it out, saying, you shall not make my house, my father's house, a house of merchandise because it is to be a house of prayer. You've turned the worship of God into some sort of religious racket where you're making money on it. And at a feast like Passover, this was a huge money-making operation. And Jesus said, you had totally missed it. This infuriated the chief priests. Furthermore, you've got the scribes. You see them there? The chief priests and the scribes. These were primarily Pharisees. They were the religious traditionalists, highly conservative, trying to follow every letter of the law, putting all forms of legalism on people. Plus, they had all these other traditions that they imposed upon the people. They were always looking down upon others. The Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, They had a hard time getting along with one another. But there was one thing they had in common. They hated Jesus. Jesus upended their religious uh, prostitution of worship of God and turned it into some sort of financial gain. And furthermore, Jesus stood in the face of the Pharisees and the scribes and said, you guys are hypocrites. You're putting people through all this legalism. You have missed what the really true worship of God is from the heart, and you are keeping people from the Messiah. And he confronted them directly, and he was hated. And notice this. They wanted to seize him by stealth, secretly, and kill him. You see it? To murder Jesus. That was what they intended. I mean, I want you to know that they took strong offense at what Jesus said, how he lived, and what people were call- he was calling them to. And they feared Jesus because he was so popular with the people. There were many people, in fact, just not long ago, that were calling out Hosanna, son of David, putting palm branches down on the ground and their blankets and coats. And Jesus is passing by and receiving this worship. And one of the things they feared is that the Roman Empire would come down harshly on them. You see, at Passover, additional troops were brought in from different parts of Israel to be in Jerusalem. And there had been some little uprisings before in the past, and Rome had quelled them quickly. The thing they feared most is that the people would somehow rally around Jesus, calling him the Messiah, and Rome would then just come down on them, strip away all of whatever power they had left, And they would be left with no power, no prestige, no religion. And Rome would say, enough with this. And so they were fearful. But there was something that you need to see here. They are not in control. What is the one thing they don't want to happen? Look at this, verse 2. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. 
We want to take him secretly in stealth, and we want to kill him. But the one time we don't want to do this is during the festival, during the Passover. That would be by far the worst timing. But do you want to see how in control our God is? You want to see divine providence put into play? That is exactly when Jesus would be crucified. The time they, they didn't want it. You know, they had about three and a half years at any time if they wanted to carry this out, and they had stated as such, to kill him, and they either didn't or couldn't. Sometimes Jesus absolutely just evaded them. But the other times, they just couldn't seem to pull it off. But now they've got a plan. But I want you to know that even their wickedness and their evil is still being worked by God in his sovereignty. But one of the responses that we see toward Jesus at the end of his ministry, and even today, is rejection. I will not have him. Whether it be kind of like a passive indifference, like I could care less, total complacency, I don't really care about Jesus. It matters nothing to me. I'll do what I want. You want to follow him or worship him? Whatever, could care less. Or there is just kind of like this active disdain and denial, a hostility to Jesus, like we see being played out in different parts of the world. Think of countries in Asia, North Korea, China. Look what's going on in Afghanistan, the persecution that's going, even if you should even think about following Jesus. Rejection of Jesus, that was actually one of the common responses. And we see it being played out here and even today. But let me give you another response to Jesus. This is just in stark contrast to what we see the chief priests and the scribes doing. And that is the response of devotion. And what Mark is going to do is he's going to give a flashback to an event that took just six days, took place six days earlier. This event that was in just complete contrast to the chief priests and the scribes who rejected him, this picture of absolute beautiful devotion. Take a look here, verse 3. Now, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon, the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. And so this was an event that took place in Bethany. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem, just a little bit less. It is kind of one of the neighboring villages during the Passover. This would be a community that would just be filled up with all of the many people that would come. This would be one of the places that they would stay. There is an event, a celebration, a banquet that took place on that Saturday prior to the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. A celebration, a meal of great gratitude given to, uh, to Jesus by a guy by the name of Simon. This is the only place in which he occurs in the New Testament. And notice he's referred to as Simon the leper. You see, he had had leprosy in his life. And to have leprosy would be to be, it'd be perhaps one of the most devastating situations that could ever happen. This skin disease oftentimes even would affect nerves, would cause you to gouge like eyes out and wear fingers down and tear ears off. If you had leprosy, you were declared by a priest, you were unclean. 
You could no longer be in society. You couldn't go to the market. You couldn't work. You had to live outside, oftentimes in a community with other lepers. If perhaps someone encountered you, you were to actually put your hand over your face and call out, unclean, unclean. That was your whole existence, and that one word became your identity. There was no occurrence ever throughout the entire Old Testament of someone ever being cured of leprosy. And yet, when Messiah came, it was prophesied that he would be the one who would do just that. And that's what we've seen as we've even gone through the Gospel of Mark. A series of times where Mark actually cures those who have leprosy. In fact, remember he'd say, hey, after I cured you, I want you to go to the priest. You show yourself and show that you are indeed clean and be declared clean because what it did is it put the Jewish elite on notice. Messiah is here. Simon most likely was one of those that Jesus had cleansed of leprosy. And as it would be, the least flattering nickname stuck. Simon the leper, but Jesus had healed him. And so he throws this feast. It's also recorded in the Gospel of John. We also find out that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus, the very same one that Jesus had actually raised from the dead. Remember, he had been dead for three days, and Jesus brought him back to life, Mary and Martha's brother. They were all at this feast because they also lived in Bethany. This was something that had obviously been planned, was going to have a lot of attention, And when Jesus came to celebrate the Passover in ways that perhaps most of them never would imagine by actually being the Passover lamb, they have this feast. And notice what takes place. Verse 3, that while they're reclining at the table, this would be their normal posture. You'd have a low-lying table. You'd be leaning on one elbow. You'd be using your other hand to actually get food. And this is how they would have banquets and oftentimes how they would eat you find that there is this woman. John identifies her as Mary. And she comes with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. So these alabaster vials would be made of marble, and they would put the most expensive of ointments, oils, in them, like this perfume. And they would be kept there. Now, this would be an extremely valuable treasure, Um, she has this, and she brings this vial. Now, this would be only used uh, generally, like, for very special occasions, and you would only put, like, just a dot, you know, just a little bit there. Just touch your neck with it. That'd be it. Maybe your hand. But she brings this vial, and notice it's an alabaster vial of pure nard. It's spike nard. It comes from this plant in India. And so it would have to be carried from India, And this was unadulterated, pure spikenard. And notice it says that it was actually, uh, she comes carrying this very, this costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. So she actually takes this vial, and everybody is watching. This is something that she had planned, she had prayed about, she prepared. She had been waiting for this day. And she takes this very valuable perfume. And while everybody is watching, she takes advantage of this moment at this feast. And she comes to Jesus. And she starts pouring it out, starting with his head. 
It would flow onto his beard, onto his garments. John says that he, she actually poured it even onto his feet, the feet of Jesus, and began wiping his feet with her hair. It's, it's an unbelievable sign of absolute devotion. She breaks the vial to show, I'm holding nothing back. I'm pouring it all out on you. And this, this was sometimes even done for those who were dead. They have found in tombs outside of Jerusalem some of these long vials that had been used to carry expensive perfume and poured out onto the body. But notice what she's doing. She takes this alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, a pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But notice how this is being responded to. I mean, they all know this is extremely expensive. As soon as she breaks that vial, you could have this incredibly powerful smell. Sweet, powerful, overwhelming. This makes Chanel number five look like some sort of Walmart special. And they're watching this. They're seeing this in unbelief. Who is this? Mary. What? Oh, my. You know, her brother had died, and she hadn't poured out all this perfume on the body of her brother. But here is Jesus, and she is doing just that. She breaks the vial. She's pouring it out, and it's nearly overpowering for all of those who are there, the smell, the scent, but it is overpowering by watching her actions. And they're all taking this in. You know, Mary is one of the fascinating people of the Bible. She's only referred to three times. The first time you find Mary, remember, uh, she's at Jesus' feet. She is soaking in all of his words. Remember that? In total devotion. Martha, kind of getting ready for the dinner, pretty disturbed that Mary's not helping. But Mary's at the feet of Jesus soaking in his every word. And then remember when um, Lazarus died and Jesus finally shows up three days later. Do you know where Mary is, where she's found? You find this in John 11. She's down again at the feet of Jesus. And then, of course, in this scene of tremendous worship, where do we find her? At the feet of Jesus. This is a deeply spiritual woman. This woman is an expression of absolute devotion to the Lord. And she found her greatest blessings, she cast her greatest burdens, and she brought her very best to the feet of Jesus. And you would think like people would just be like, whoa, whoa, what a display of devotion. But that's not what we find. Take a look. Verse 4. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted. Why has this been a waste? We find out from John's gospel that the person that's the spokesperson that leads with this attack is Judas, Judas Iscariot. And all the other disciples apparently follow through and keep up with this. It's indignantly remarking. This is an interesting word because in the Greek, this was sometimes used for horses that were braying or snorting. And that's what they're doing. They're snorting, they're scoffing at her. They're scolding her. They're showing their disapproval. And they're being led by Judas. And you're thinking like, wow, well, Judas, you know, 
he obviously knows what a good use of resources is, and he's recognizing this is a terrible one. But John tells us that actually, not so much. It's not that he cared about the poor. In fact, what he really cared about is himself. As the treasurer of Jesus' disciples, he was in charge of their money box. And John records that he would steal from it. And so he makes this remark, but notice they said it's wasted. And he says, verse 5, for this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. 300 denarii. So um, a common laborer would receive one denarii for a denarius for a day's work. So 300 of them is about what you'd make in a year. How much do you make in a year? Can you imagine pouring just all of that out upon Jesus? That's what this woman did. We don't know if this was part of Mary's dowry or um, perhaps uh, her father. If he didn't have any sons, this was her inheritance. Maybe her husband died. Maybe she had this. Maybe she was one of the few women that had significant resources, and this was one of them, if not all of them. But she pours it out. But notice she is, she's ridiculed by followers of Jesus being led by Judas. And so look at Jesus coming to her defense. Verse 6, But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why did you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. She has done that which is noble, beautiful for me. And then he says this in verse 7, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. He is in no way minimizing the care for the poor. And as disciples of Jesus, we do have a heart to care for the poor. But what Jesus is highlighting is this. You've only got a short time while I'm walking on this earth. This woman has recognized what is happening, and she has offered an to- act of total devotion to me. You've always got the poor. You're not always going to have me walking on this earth. And notice he said, she has done what she could. She had planned it, thought about it, prepared, prayed, and she executed it. It's similar to a statement to like what took place in Mark 12. Remember when that widow with those two little leptas, those two small coins, remember when she put that into the temple? And Jesus acknowledged and said, wow, this woman put in everything. Pretty similar statement right here. And notice what Jesus said. I don't want you to miss this. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Mary, perhaps, is Jesus' very best listener. I mean, we see her. A lot of things going on, important things going on, like meals, right? That's very important. But Mary is soaking in every word of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. Even Jesus' enemies had an understanding of his predictions that he's going to die and rise again. Remember that in Matthew chapter 27? That's why they said, listen, we need a guard over this grave, this tomb, 
because they called him a deceiver, said that he's going to die and rise again. It's really not that hard to imagine that Mary understood what was about to take place. She had listened to the words and she believed and she is preparing Jesus' body for burial. It's like this just amazing gift. And so can't you see her pouring out this extremely valuable perfume? John says that it's, it was a pound. A Roman pound is 12 ounces. That's like, the, like that Diet Coke you got in your hand, that much, pouring it out. I want you to think of this. The scent would just be overwhelming. And I want you to know that the scent would now just permeate Jesus' body. And for this next week, everywhere that Jesus would go, so would go the scent of this perfume. When Jesus went to the temple and cleared it out and flipped all those tables, there was the smell of the scent of the Savior. When Jesus was interfacing with the religious leaders and taking on all their trick questions, every time they inhaled, they would smell that perfume scent. When Jesus went and celebrated Passover, that final one with his disciples, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying, when he's apprehended by the soldiers, when he was brought to the chief priests' homes for their mock trials, when he was taken to Herod's hall or Pilate's praetorium, when he was scourged, when they actually cast lots for his garments, you know what they could smell? The scent of the perfume that was given by Mary. And I want you to think of this. You know, when they nailed Jesus to that cross, I want you to picture those Roman soldiers. And they forced his hands and his arms on that beam and straightened out his legs. And when they took that breath in, before they nailed him, they smelled the scent of that perfume anointing his body for his death. Jesus went to the cross, prepared for his burial. And this woman did it. And notice what Jesus said. Verse 9. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Wherever the gospel of the kingdom goes, that Jesus is the king, that forgiveness, eternal life is found for those who truly repent and receive him as Lord, doing so by faith, following him as his disciple, wherever this gospel goes, I don't want you to miss this. I've underlined this in my Bible. Preached in the whole world. Do you see this? At the moment this takes place, Jesus announces, this gospel, the good news about me, it's going through the entire world. And when it does, this noble, beautiful work that this woman has done, Mary, why, well, guess what? It's going to be spoken of in memory of her. And so it has. God had this event captured in Scripture. And even today, at this very moment, think of it, we're taking it all in, this expression of amazing devotion. Know this. Devotion leads to motion. When you have actual devotion to Christ, it is going to be expressed. 
Devotion isn't just something that can be contained. It flows out of people. And this is an amazing act of devotion that this woman has. And yet, I want you to see this. You also see the sovereign hand of God in all of this. It's as if God the Father, through the expression of love and devotion through Mary, has Jesus anointed by this perfume, this anointing oil, preparing him for his own death. And it's just this sign that says, I absolutely love you, and now is the time. I tell you what, the more I think about Mary, I am just overwhelmed by her. I would like to have a faith like hers. And if we're going to live like Mary, we need to think and have a heart like Mary. You see, Mary spent so much time, the time that she had to be with Christ, she took it all in, oftentimes right there at his feet. And you will find that when you are a person that truly treasures Jesus, that you have gratitude for his grace, you're overwhelmed that he died on the cross for you, that you experience his fellowship and the, by virtue of the resurrection, you know what that leads to in your life? Devotion with expression. And that's what we th- find here. You know, before we gather again, and as we prepare, prepare for the fall, I want you to be thinking, what does extravagant devotion look like in your life? Devotion to Jesus. The more you spend time with him, appreciate him, love him, cherish him and his word, the more that devotion flows out of your life. And as you're thinking, like, I just want to challenge you. Think, what would an extravagant gift look like in your life? Don't think of the gift first. You know what you think of? Think of his gift. You think of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, the eternity and forgiveness he's given you, life in Christ. And then as you're becoming overwhelmed with him, then start looking for some expensive perfume. Maybe it's going to be just time with God. Maybe it's going to be write a poem or a song. Maybe it's a a financial gift given in his name. Maybe it's some sort of expression of service. But think about your life being poured out for him. That's what we see in Mary. And if you're looking for like what that opportunity could look like, I want you to know like right after service, please just go down to the North Foyer. You'll see all these different ministries of our church where we're giving opportunity to express the grace of Christ, opportunities to serve, to give, to be connected. Consider what devotion looks like for you. And when we give ourselves with our finances and our service and our time and our experiences and our resources, you know what this is? It's worship. It's devotion. It's one of the expressions that you find in response to who Jesus is. You see, when Jesus' ministry ended, there were three different responses that we find. One, well, one was rejection. In contrast to that is devotion. But there is a third, and that is desertion. Let me give you one name. Judas Iscariot. Take a look. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. Judas Iscariot. His, his name, Iscariot, means man 
of Kirioth. Kirioth was a village about 23 miles south of Jerusalem. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He's always listed last for precisely this reason. But I want you to know he was one of the men that Jesus closely associated with. All the other disciples were from the north part, from Galilee. Judas was from the south. Judas perhaps was the one that actually had a formal education. He was extremely trusted, so trusted, and so much did he earn the respect of the others that he was the treasure. He had the money box. When he spoke, like we saw just even earlier, and started mocking and scolding Mary, guess what? The other guys, you know what? We respect Judas. He's the real deal. We'll start tearing her up as well. And they did. Judas Iscariot. He uh, very likely thought that Jesus was his perfect opportunity. I mean, think of it. Jesus had selected him. Uh, He never came to a place of devotion or actual belief and trust, but he really thought Jesus could do some things for him. For instance, if there was anyone that could bring a sense of prestige to make him wealthy, to experience all kind of power, his dreams of authority and control and widespread influence and commanding respect, I want you to know he thought Jesus might just very well be that guy because after all, people were calling him the son of David and he actually took that title. He was doing miracles. I mean, think of it. Why people were like, whoa, only God could do this. This is looking really good for Judas. Judas, like like all of the disciples, probably thought that when Jesus establishes the kingdom and they thought it was coming real soon, why, they're going to have some of the top spots. This is great! And Jesus picked me for it. But you know, there's some things that really started to bother Judas. He was realizing that, yes, he's a king, but he seems to be a king that's reigning in the hearts and the lives of those who love him. He's not really spending a lot of time focusing on the physical, political kingdom, which Judas was especially interested in. There's a physical kingdom coming, but it all begins with this spiritual kingdom of him reigning in their hearts. And furthermore, like, Jesus isn't like preparing armies, or at least not like he was expecting. And furthermore, Jesus Jesus takes this act of worship this expression of absolute devotion from Mary, and instead of rebuking her, he receives it and defends her. That was just too much for him. But there was one thing that really probably got to Jesus, Judas about Jesus, and that is he keeps talking about his impending death. Jesus keeps talking about him dying. Why, he wants him conquering. What's this about death? Judas sees this isn't going in the direction he wants. And so he's got to salvage the situation. He's going to trade him in. He's going to betray Jesus. And so notice what he does. One of the 12, it's hard to even read those words. One that was with Jesus. One of the 12 that had been sent out, been commissioned, saw the miracles, experienced the love, all the grace, feeding in the 5,000, raising the dead, One of the twelve went off to the chief priests. He knew those that wanted to kill him. So he went to the chief priests in order to betray him 
to them. And look at this. The chief priests, they recognized him. Oh yeah, probably one of the most important guys that Jesus had. Verse 11. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Matthew records that the exchange was this. This was the contract. I'll betray him. We'll make this covert. I know there's thousands and thousands of people all around, but I'll find the place where it'll be stealth, not a lot of people, not a lot of drama, and I'll turn him over. And you know what the price was, according to Matthew? 30 pieces of silver. To give you context, 30 pieces of silver was the price that was given if a slave was accidentally gored to death by an ox. About four months' wage. It shows you how very little Judas thought of Jesus and how little the chief priests thought of the Messiah. And so he went out to begin looking for an opportunity to betray him. You know, even in this, do you see God's complete control? Do you know who selected Judas? Jesus did. Judas didn't volunteer. Jesus picked him. Why? Because God is fulfilling all all of the prophecies of Scripture. Like you see in Psalm 41 or 55 or Zechariah 11, it is prophesied that the Messiah is going to be betrayed by one of his own, a dear friend. This is God's sovereign display of providence in the midst of the most evil act ever perpetrated in humanity. You know, if God is so sovereign in this kind of evil, when we look at the evil in our world, remember this, even though we may not understand it, God is accomplishing his purposes. He is good, he is almighty, and we can trust him. And remember this, those who reject Jesus, they'll always find friends when people desert him. And the deserter, like, Jesus, like Judas, he shows up, and guess what? The rejectors are really happy to have him. You know, one of the responses to Jesus that we see today is desertion. In today's culture, you've got people walking away from Jesus, starting their own movements, shredding the scriptures, reinterpreting them. People that are denying him once said, oh yeah, I was a follower, pastors, you know, musicians, big time celebrity followers of Jesus, so to speak, and now completely denying him. I want you to know that desertion is one of the responses to Jesus. But I've got good news for the rejectors and the deserters. There is what is called the gospel. God rescues people from death, spiritual death, and gives you life when you will truly trust him for who he is. You see, God is taking all of us who were once rejectors, some of us even deserters, and bringing us to a place of devotion, of absolute love for him. Devotion is the dynamic and diamond of discipleship. It is the epitome of what it means to know him, to follow him, and to have eternal life. And our lives for eternity are determined by what we do with Jesus. You see, God is cultivating us devotion. And I want you to know that there's been acts of devotion that are expressed in deep and significant ways all the time because Jesus is at work in his people, like at Fellowship Bible Church. We have people that are expressing deep signs of devotion to Jesus. Extravagant. In fact, I'd like to share one with you. What I'm about to share 
I've asked for permission to do. Um, I received a letter uh, this month. Inside that letter was a very significant check, an offering of worship made to God, written out to our church. And I'm going to read just a brief excerpt from this letter. This lady writes, I love fellowship. And she goes on to say, I want to give this donation to God's work, his ministry, to how you want to use it. Grant, I was going to buy, pay cash for, and she actually names what is a really nice car. She writes, a new one. I told my husband yesterday, I don't need that car. I don't need really anything. I want to give to the work of the Lord. And he said, it's your decision. So my decision, I want to give to Fellowship Bible Church to kingdom work. I ask God to let me be light and salt. Give me wisdom and knowledge in Christ Jesus to do what I need to be doing. I belong to a risen Savior who died for me and the world's sins. I am here, Lord, to serve how I may, helping others, serving, giving toward kingdom work. I hope this money is helpful, but it is truly a blessing for me to give this to the church. For I, what I want is God to use me, to show me what I am to do in this journey, that I may satisfy my Lord with all my heart, mind, and strength. Glory to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Remember this. The defining feature of your life is how you're responding to Jesus Christ. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, we're just at one of these sacred moments where the scriptures are open. Your spirit is moving. And once again, you put the Savior and sovereignty on display. And you do so through the amazing expressions of devotion, devotion like Mary. Father, for someone who is here who has never truly trusted you, they're perhaps in the camp of had formerly been rejecting you or maybe even a deserter, where they realize the overwhelming grace and love that you have that calls people out of darkness into life, where they pray with me and say, God, I repent. I turn from my sin. I trust in Jesus as my Savior. I need you as my Lord. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, would you cultivate in us just overwhelming, extravagant devotion. Maybe we just be overwhelmed by the 10,000 reasons you have given us to love you from the heart. And so we do in Jesus' name, amen.